One of the greatest efforts ever undertaken by the JPRC occurred in April 1972 with the rescue of Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton in the famous incident known as Bat 21 near the town of Dong Ha in Kwangtri province. Hamilton was a veteran Air Force officer nearing the end of his career. He was 53 years old, had spent 30 years in the Air Force, much of it in the Strategic Air Command. The effort to recover Hamilton eventually grew into one of the most complicated and costly post-SAR efforts of the entire war. It became the stuff of legend. Indeed, a movie was later made about it, starring Gene Hackman as Hamilton and Danny Glover as a forward air controller who shepherds him to safety. More important, the huge expenditure in ammunition, aircraft, and ultimately men's lives brought up the old, haunting question. How much is one life worth? The massive NVA operation called the Easter Offensive had just rolled across the DMZ in a conventional, almost blitzkrieg-style attack. Gone were the days of small infantry units engaging in short but sharp battles. This was a multi-division attack, backed up with recently acquired Soviet armor and fully supported by highly trained air defense troops. The NVA's target was the upper provinces of South Vietnam adjacent to the DMZ, which were flanked by the communist sanctuaries in Laos. The NVA assault overran several Arvin units, and while many Arvin soldiers fought well, others turned and fled in the face of the onslaught. One unit in particular, the Arvin 3rd Division, quickly found itself surrounded by strong NVA forces. The North Vietnamese planned the offensive to take advantage of the poor seasonal weather. Low cloud cover prevented U.S. tactical air power from supporting the Arvin troops. In order to relieve some of the pressure on the embattled Arvin 3rd Division, an April 2 B-52 strike was ordered against an advancing NVA column. The Air Force knew the enemy had SAM, or surface-to-air missiles, in the area, so they added additional support aircraft to suppress them. These included two EB-66s sent to jam the enemy SAM radar and locate the sites. Their call signs, BAT-21 and BAT-22. Despite these precautions, the enemy SAM batteries quickly picked up the approaching aircraft and fired three different salvos at the U.S. planes. The first two volleys missed, but a missile from the third barrage directly struck BAT-21. Of the crew of six, only Hamilton is known to have ejected safely. His chute was quickly spotted by a nearby FAC forward air controller who radioed for a rescue attempt of the downed airmen. Fortunately, some SAR search air rescue forces were close by, having launched earlier to recover another aviator. As two of the heavily armed prop-driven A-1s used for SAR support entered the area, intense enemy anti-aircraft fire immediately opened up. The A-1s subdued the fire enough so that several U.S. helicopter from F Troop, 8th Cavalry, could make the rescue attempt. As one of the Hueys came in, it was struck repeatedly by concentrated enemy ground fire and crashed. One man made it out, 
and was captured alive by North Vietnamese troops who quickly carried him back across the DMZ, or Demilitarized Zone. The other three crew members were killed. With night falling, however, further SAR efforts were called off. Airstrikes hit enemy locations around Hamilton, who had landed four kilometers beyond Arvin lines. Worse, his position was in the middle of one of the NVA's main avenues of attack against the beleaguered Arvin units. On April 3rd, the Valiant SAR forces returned for another try, but the communist anti-aircraft fire was simply overwhelming. Two Jolly Green rescue helicopters were badly hit, but limped back and essentially crash-landed at Fubai. That afternoon, another U.S. plane was also shot down. An OV-10 observation plane carrying Captain William Henderson and First Lieutenant Mark Clark was hit by a shoulder-fired SA-7 missile. They managed to escape their burning plane before it exploded. Safely reaching the ground, Henderson was captured, hiding in bushes 10 meters from the river. But Clark evaded the enemy ground troops searching for him. Now, two pilots needed rescuing. That night, Hamilton reported that the NVA were searching for him using flashlights. On April 4th and 5th, the weather worsened, and little could be done for the airmen. But on April 6th, the storms had passed, and the sun shone brightly in the morning sky. The A-1s returned with a vengeance, pounding the exposed NVA. Tremendous quantities of air bombardment poured down on the NVA anti-aircraft positions, so much so that the airstrikes, which normally would have gone to support the surrounded South Vietnamese, were diverted to attack the enemy forces around Hamilton and Clark. The American advisors to the Arvin units bitterly complained to their superiors about the Air Force's lack of response to their pleas for help, but the Air Force ignored them and continued to support the SAR effort instead. Despite the enormous tonnage of U.S. explosives dropped on the NVA, their AAA units fought back with grim determination. However, by mid-morning, a forward air controller who was directing the aerial assault decided to make another pickup attempt. He ordered a Jolly Green rescue helicopter to make a run for them. Spotting the SAR helicopter, the NVA attacked it. Taking enemy fire from all sides, the incredibly brave Jolly Green pilot attempted to reach Hamilton. As he came to hover over Hamilton, the heavy enemy fusillade intensified, and the helicopter was struck numerous times. The pilot was forced to break off, but the relentless hail of gunfire followed the helicopter along his path of retreat. Unable to shake the ferocious barrage, the Jolly Green took more hits and crashed about three kilometers away from Hamilton's position. The wreckage burned for days, sending black clouds billowing into the air and marking the spot where six Americans gave their lives trying to rescue the downed airmen. Back in Saigon, after reviewing the high losses in aircraft and the diversion of air power away from the Arvin, General Abrams himself reluctantly made the decision to call off further rescue attempts. But Andy Anderson at the GPRC had been closely following the operation, and when Abrams stood his men down, Anderson decided it was his turn. Andy Anderson knew the history of the JPRC, its failures, and its many frustrating efforts over a six-year period to rescue American POWs. Like all the other officers who had served there, during his short time as head of the unit, he burned to rescue a fellow American from the clutches of the communists. 
Like the rest, however, he quickly encountered enormous logistical problems and political roadblocks that stood in the way of success. As he carefully watched the events unfold in the area around Dong Ha, where Hamilton and Clark were hiding, an idea began to form in his mind that perhaps a ground team could do what the courageous SAR helicopters could not, sneak in, undetected, and steal the two airmen from underneath the NVA's nose. But meanwhile, the situation had grown more tense. On April 7, a second OV-10 was shot down, adding another evading pilot to the picture. The pilot... First Lieutenant Bruce Walker was communicating with SAR forces, but his backseater, Marine First Lieutenant Larry Potts, was ominously silent. When General Abrams made his difficult decision to stand down the operation, Anderson went to see Major General Winton W. Marshall, second-in-command of the 7th Air Force. In doing so, Anderson deliberately stepped outside of the chain of command, knowing full well that if he went to see Colonel Sadler at SOG or Abrams, his idea would be rejected. By approaching the Air Force instead, he exposed himself to possible disciplinary action and jeopardized his entire career. Anderson took a calculated risk that they would listen and support him. General Marshall agreed to see the stocky Marine. When Anderson arrived on April 8th, he asked him what he could do for him. In a nonchalant manner, Anderson told the general he thought he could get a small team in to rescue the three pilots. He explained his plan to Marshall, who listened with growing interest. When Anderson finished, Marshall asked him why he was doing this. Anderson explained the bitter history of the JPRC, finished by telling Marshall that the JPRC was slated to leave SOG shortly and move to the J-2 intelligence shop. He wanted the unit to know some success before it stood down, and he felt this was its last, best chance. Marshall understood and resolved to assist this last-ditch effort. With Air Force backing, Anderson immediately flew to the coastal city of Da Nang to visit the Navy Advisory Group, which had been part of SOG since its inception. Anderson's plan called for getting a Navy SEAL with six Vietnamese commandos to swim up the Mu Giang River, have the airmen meet them at the river, and then escape and evade to the Arvin lines by floating back down. Upon reaching Da Nang, Anderson was startled to find that the unit was already ready to close down in three days. Virtually everyone had already departed. He begged the Navy officer, Greg Dorman, to find him someone who could help. Dorman called the Navy office back in Saigon. As luck would have it, Tommy Norris, the SEAL, was sitting there. Norris agreed to the mission, and the Air Force quickly flew him north to rendezvous with Anderson. Anderson and Norris went together to see Arvin 3rd Division Commander. He was extremely reluctant to assist the crazy Americans, but told them he would comply with their requests if ordered to. Anderson, already out on a limb, called back to Colonel Frank Zerb at SOG. Zerb convinced the Arvins to go along with Anderson, but he forced Anderson to promise him that he would not swim in the river and that he would coordinate the operation from behind front lines. Although Anderson agreed, he had no intention of keeping his promise. On April 10, Norris, Anderson, and the Vietnamese commandos reached the Arvin outpost closest to the downed airmen, an old French bunker complex along the Route 9 motorcade route that led into Laos. It was manned by an understrength platoon of Arvin Rangers supported by two tanks, 
coordinating constantly with the facts flying overhead, Anderson devised a plan to move all three airmen to the river for pickup. The plan was passed to all three using an ingenious method of communication. Hamilton was an avid golfer. Using the layout of different courses, the strategy was passed to him describing how he was to proceed undetected to the river. Successive course changes would enable him to bypass the large concentration of enemy forces in the area. One of the FAC pilots who maintained contact with Hamilton relayed the messages to the exhausted officer. One message read, Make like Esther Williams and head for Big Muddy. No NVA listening in would be able to crack that code. A similar but less elaborate plan was passed to Clark and Walker via their survival radios. On the night of April 10th, Norris entered the waters of the Mio Gang. Anderson ordered Norris to go far, no farther than one kilometer up the river from the outpost. Norris agreed, but like Anderson, he had no intention of, of obeying. He believed Anderson's plan was deeply flawed. Moreover, he believed Anderson's plan was badly flawed. As a highly trained Navy SEAL, he was accustomed to being given a wide latitude in carrying out orders. As Norris entered the water, Anderson watched the area for enemy movement using a night vision device. He also acted as a radio relay to the orbiting aircraft, who in turn passed on information to the survivors. Clark made the first move, since he was the closest to the river. However, he entered the water early and floated past the pickup point. Norris chased him down the river and eventually located him and brought him back. To Anderson, Clark was only the first one. He had two more to go. The morning of April 11th, the NVA spotted Arvin tanks, which, like magnets, immediately drew heavy enemy fire. The NVA pounded the outpost with the artillery, resulting in five Arvin dead and 15 wounded. During a lull in the barrage, Anderson jumped out to help pull some of the wounded into a nearby bunker. Suddenly, a mortar round slammed into the turret of a tank about 10 meters away. A piece of shrapnel flew off and hit Anderson above the left eye, lodging it in his nasal passage. The shrapnel hit him, quote, like a baseball bat, knocking him unconscious for a few minutes. When he awoke, he was unable to see out the other eye, but 30 minutes later, his sight returned. Although he was only slightly wounded, he became the first and only JPRC military man to ever receive a wound during an official mission. The incident created a great stir back in Saigon. Senior commanders began asking pointed questions about Anderson's whereabouts and intentions. An officer with his security clearances and knowledge of U.S. operations would be a tremendous catch for the enemy. Anderson was ordered back to Saigon. Although he was forced to return to base, his concern for Hamilton was growing. He was by far the oldest of the airmen, and he had been on the ground longer. Anderson feared that Hamilton's stamina was fading rapidly, and on the night of April 12th, his fears came true. After a harrowing run to the river, Hamilton collapsed. He was completely exhausted and lay in the water all night, propped against the riverbank. Time now was of the essence. For once, luck was on the American side. The batteries in the survival radio Hamilton carried should never have held out this long, but surprisingly they did. On April 13th, with Anderson en route back from Saigon, Norris and one of the South Vietnamese commandos entered the river again. Using an abandoned sampan, they moved towards Hamilton's position. Reaching Hamilton, they placed him in the bottom of the shallow boat and covered him. Slowly, they began to move back down the river. 
As they neared friendly lines, an enemy machine gunner spotted them and opened fire. Out in the open water, Norris ducked into some nearby reeds to hide. He quickly called in an airstrike. An A-1 dropped a load of bombs directly on the nest and silenced the position. They continued unopposed and made it back safely. Both Clark and Hamilton were suffering from cuts and bruises, but were otherwise okay. Anderson immediately informed the JPRC of the successful recovery. His message read, quote, With much delight and much pleasure, report Quang Tree Bright Light Operation is success. Second pilot on ground 12 days, brought out by Sea Commando team. Condition unknown, but alive and all right. Lieutenant Colonel Anderson released this morning ahead and at Naval Advisory Group. End quote. The rescue operation, though, wasn't over yet. Bruce Walker, the pilot of the second OV-10, was still on enemy ground. The new plan called for Walker to move through a no-fire zone to the river while the Arvin made an obvious thrust west along their side of the river, hoping to draw the NVA away from the area. Walker was to traverse. On April 15th, the plan commenced, but Walker was unable to move through the the massed enemy troops. The plan was changed, and he was instructed to move east. In the pre-dawn hours of April 18, he was discovered by an enemy patrol. They began to chase him. Unfortunately, no forward air controller or FAC was overhead at this point to assist him. When a FAC did reach the scene at first light, he discovered Walker's difficult situation, and he called in airstrikes to keep at bay the NVA who were following Walker. However, after a short time, the FAC was no longer able to reach Walker on the radio. In 1993 interviews with several of the enemy soldiers, it was revealed that they had literally been in running pursuit of the fleeing Walker. They chased him into an open field, and with dawn breaking and the airstrikes slamming into the earth around them, they realized that they could not capture him. An enemy soldier crept up close to Walker and shot him with five rounds of rifle fire. Of the three evading airmen, only Bruce Walker would never come home. The mission was now over. Anderson returned to the JPRC, but his tour was finished. He departed Vietnam within days and returned to the States. He retired within a year and took a job as a banker in Albany, New York, in a letter to Gary Balknight, he wrote, quote, I finally got my bronze star for meritorious service in the Dong Ha Swim. The Commandant of the Marine Corps was livid with rage when he only saw meritorious service after all the high-level messages from McCain to Moore crossed his desk about the operation. His comment was, I bet if you were in the Army Special Forces, it would have been a distinguished service crossed. For his extraordinary effort, Tommy Norris received the Medal of Honor for his actions during the Bat-21 mission. His South Vietnamese assistant, Nguyen Van Ket, received the Navy Cross, the only Vietnamese ever to do so. That is the famous, infamous Bat-21 bright light mission that occurred in April of 1972 as the Vietnam War was winding down. That passage comes from the book Codename Bright Light 
The Untold Story of U.S. POW Rescue Efforts During the Vietnam War, written by George W. Vieth. It was published in 1998. This book was one of the very first books that was published um, after the 1990s uh, Senate POW Affairs Commission um, declassified an incredible amount of formally unavailable government documents relating to Bright Light missions, uh, SOG efforts, um, anything that fell under the umbrella of POW rescue efforts during Vietnam. Now, some 25 or so years later, we're still learning a lot about the story of the true nature of POW rescue uh, efforts during the Vietnam War. If you've been listening to the Modern Military History podcast, you have already heard the story of SOG, or Special Operations Group, Studies and Operations Group, whatever you want to call it. It had a couple names during the war. SOG was one of the team, or one of the facets of the uh, U.S. military that was conducting uh, POW rescue attempts, or codenamed Bright Light Missions. Bright Light, a Bright Light Mission means a POW rescue attempt, or a downed airman attempt, attempt at rescuing somebody who uh, was behind enemy lines. We heard from John Stryker Meyer, a SOG 1-0, incredible man who uh, was very generous with his uh, time and uh, walked us all through his time uh, in Vietnam with SOG. If you haven't listened to his story, go on back to podcast number 10 and listen to John Stryker Meyer and the history of SOG. You're going to be hearing more about SOG in this podcast, but it's not a SOG podcast. This is a podcast about bright light efforts during the Vietnam War and coming from the book codenamed Bright Light by George W. Vieth. It's a tough book because it's a tough subject. There's not a lot of feel-good stories around POW rescue efforts during the Vietnam War. There were many rescue efforts. And as heard from the Bat 21 episode that we just started this podcast with, some of them were successful. Most of them failed. And uh, the Vietnam War presented a lot of unique and foreboding issues with recovering POWs intrinsic with uh, asymmetrical warfare where battle lines are not clearly and often not defined at all. And uh, things we still face issues with today as uh, the traditional stand and fight militaries have given way to counterinsurgencies and guerrilla warfare. And when a POW is taken, there's no official way to um, barter for his release. There's no official POW Geneva Accord internment program like that was seen during the Second World War. The communists during the Vietnam War put together this uh, facade that they were a united front but in reality, there were many factions across multiple countries, 
and they didn't always know where the POWs were, if they were Amer- where the American POWs were. Um, at the end of the war, only a small handful of POWs were actually returned. Hundreds of Americans are still missing, and uh, we don't know what happened to them. If they were POWs, we don't know what happened to them. Their bodies haven't been recovered. Dozens of Green Berets are still missing in Laos alone, as John Strykermeyer told us in podcast number 10. And the uh, U.S. POW slash MIA missing in action movement um, defined our national shame surrounding the Vietnam War. It is agreed upon, understood, and confirmed that the U.S. military left people behind in Vietnam. But this book, codenamed Bright Light, outlines the story of rescue efforts. And a surprising few of them involve the heroism and on-the-ground action of Bat-21, where Navy SEAL Norris earned the Medal of Honor for swimming and paddling a sampan up a river to rescue two downed pilots. Of course, the third was shot and killed. There's an incredible amount of political posturing, skullduggery, and plain luck involved in POW rescue efforts during the Vietnam War. This podcast is not going to be a be-all, end-all chronological coverage of the POW rescue efforts from, uh, you know, roughly 1964 to 1975 during the Vietnam War. This is actually going to be a series of highlights that help give you, the listener, a bit more background, to get a bit more knowledge about the true nature of what it was like to try to get POWs during the war. Why we as a nation failed to get all of our men out. And hopefully will incentivize you to either buy this book, Codename Bright Light by George W. Vyeth. I'll put the link in the description of this podcast. Or pick up any number of books. There's incredible heroism. Incredible heroism and efforts on behalf of the U.S. military attempting to get these men out and rescue these men. But for some of the reasons we're going to investigate, they weren't entirely successful. I'm not at all degradating anybody's performance here. This is just difficult history, and uh, it needs to be told honestly. Without further ado, we're going to get into some of the political problems faced in getting men during the Vietnam War, especially in Laos, where... The U.S. ambassador during 1968 and part of 1969, a man by the name of Sullivan, was often standing in the way of getting POW rescue attempts because he was primarily thinking about, of course, political repercussions because he was a politician. 
So, of course, the U.S. Uh, political stance during the Vietnam War was to respect the um, national autonomy of Laos and Cambodia. So if we were to do anything in those countries, we were to seek approval from the U.S. ambassador working with the government in that country to do so. Of course, we heard John Stryker Meyer talk about his multiple recon missions ran in direct combat in Laos. So these were not neutral zones. These were part of the war. But for a variety of political reasons, there was a veil of political, I don't know what you want to call it. It was um, the the air of, of, of political um, posturing to official officially sanction actions occurring in these countries even though we were there already the more you learn about vietnam and the war the more incredible this history becomes because it was just so complex it was so complex there was so much problematic reality involved with fighting this war on the ground that the picture becomes so much clearer um, about the true nuance of the situation. And on February of 27th in 1968, a series of events kicked off that can help shed light on the problematic nature of this war. Back to the book. On February 27th, a Navy OP-2 Neptune plane was shot down on a sensor-laying mission over the Ho Chi Minh Trail in southern Laos. Of the nine crewmen on board, seven managed to bail out and were rescued by SAR helicopters. One man, John Hartsheim, was badly wounded and went down with the plane. The pilot was a different story. The SAR forces picked up a strong beeper from a survivor thought to be the pilot, Paul Milius. Contact was lost before they could rescue him. The next day, the SAR forces requested that the JPRC provide a bright light team to recover the survivor. Codename Texas Crest. The plan was to insert the team to the man's location to conduct a limited area ground search. Ogle was ordered to escort the team to NKP. Unable to get Sullivan's approval to proceed into Laos, the team waited all day in Thailand. Permission was finally granted on February 29th, and the team was briefly inserted that morning, but was extracted because of heavy enemy fire. General Westmoreland was outraged at Ambassador Sullivan's dithering. He sent a cable to Vientiane expressing dismay at the length of time needed to authorize the JPRC bright light team. Sullivan, trying to justify his actions, smoothly wrote back that, quote, I am puzzled by your statement that there was misunderstanding concerning proposed bright light rescue effort. All information which we now have received here concerning Navy crash indicated that seven crew members bailed out and that two remaining, both wounded, were trapped in forward compartment. I have received distinct impression that chances of their having successfully bailed out were very slim, while it is true that search and rescue of personnel reported seeing somebody on the ground near the crash site, there was never any confirmation that this person was a crew member. Nevertheless, 
Because of that sighting and the slim chance that it could have been a crew member, I authorized the Bright Light mission. The authorization was delayed due to confusion resulting from MACV SOG failure to follow procedures prescribed in JPRC Memorandum of Agreement. In my view, mission might have been able to move into crash site on same day if proper coordination procedure had been followed. From a political point of view, SAR rescue forces are USAF, United States Air Force, personnel to which RLG has given its consent. JPRC forces are Vietnamese special forces teams who are introdu whose introduction into Laos is always a matter of utmost political sensitivity. Because of fact, there are no ex there uh, there that because of facts that there exists no understanding with RLG that they can be used in Laos. Hence, it is categorically not possible to permit them Carta Blanche to operation in Laos where a crash occurs. Westmoreland fired back. Quote, I regret to say that we have missed the opportunity to pick up a survivor through procedure problems. In spite of our exchange of messages, voice, radio, and visual contact established with an eighth man. Eighth man was able to fire flare on command and vector overhead by radio. When contact was lost because of hoist problems, impending darkness, and possibly broken radio, JSARC and the 7th Air Force authorities believed an excellent chance of recovery with a ground search team working closely with SAR forces. End quote. Westmoreland went on to mention that the Navy plane was only a secondary objective. In SAR operations, time is of the absolute essence. Obviously, someone was alive, on the ground, and signaling. But Sullivan's refusal to imminently allow the Bright Light team into Laos because of political sensitivities and, quote, procedural problems may have cost a man his life. Plus, Sullivan was confused over the JPRC objective, which wasn't the Navy plane, but the man who fired his flare on command. Neither pilot from the RF-4C Wright or Palmer returned at Operation Homecoming or has ever been accounted for. That's a frustrating passage to read, but it really brings to light the true situation of what it was like to, to go after men with a bright light mission. First, approval was needed from the U.S. ambassador at the capital of the city, Vientiane, which is the capital city of Laos. Ambassador Sullivan was not military. He um, misunderstood the objective. He, he was misunderstanding that contact had been established with somebody on the ground. They weren't quite sure who, but they knew an American was on the ground because they fired an American flare, had made radio contact. Um, they knew that somebody was there and they needed to go in ASAP. But Sullivan was misunderstanding. There was a breakdown in communication. Maybe that wasn't his fault. Maybe that wasn't his fault. But regardless, he didn't have the adequate training and understanding either him or with the people around him helping him work on this situation because an ambassador has a team of people, especially in, during the Vietnam War, if you're the ambassador to Laos, you, you deal with this. And this is 1968, so doubtless this had happened before. The blame falls on Sullivan in this book, but I want to make sure that we also 
uh, take into account that Sullivan was speaking through middlemen and that there is this bureaucracy of political, military, which are both very different. Politicians and military thinkers are different. Fundamentally, they're trained differently. They do different jobs. And they're all trying to communicate together, multiple countries, um, to coordinate a rescue effort. And nobody's on the same page. And that's the first thing I kind of want to touch on is just the chaotic reality of trying to formulate a bright light mission in Laos or Cambodia. Just due to the fact that it's a different country from Vietnam where the war, quote unquote, is happening, quote unquote. In fact, the war was all over Laos and Cambodia as well. It was all over Southeast Asia in this area. But politically, the war was in Vietnam. So if you were going to go outside of the borders of Vietnam, you had to deal with this kind of thing. I also want to bring you through the wording of the Sullivan message and the Westmoreland message. Sullivan first in his message starts blaming everybody. He blames the SAR search and rescue personnel. He blames SAR for not seeing or or not confirming who they saw on the ground, which is interesting. Um, He blames Mac V. Sog for not following proper procedures. And just so you know, JPRC stands for Joint Personnel Recovery. So that's the, that's the, um, the, the specific part of the military in Vietnam that's helping coordinate POW rescue and uh, down pilot pickup programs. So they're, they're heavily involved in Bright Light 100. That's, that is their uh, mission in Vietnam. JPRC is, is the Joint Recovery Personnel. Um, so Sullivan's blaming all these people. He is blaming everybody but himself. He's saying, despite of everybody else's failures, he did authorize the bright light vision. Listen to this. While it is true that the SAR personnel reported seeing somebody on the ground near the crash site, there was never any confirmation that this person was a crew member. Nevertheless, because of that sighting and the slim chance that it would have been a crew member, I authorized the bright light mission. So that's Sullivan (laughs) saying, everybody else has their head up their ass. But here I am taking the risk heroically despite everything and authorizing. And then later, after that, he then says that JPRC forces are Vietnamese special forces teams whose introduction into Laos is always a matter of utmost political sensitivity. Hence, it is categorically not possible to permit them carte blanche to operate in Laos where a crash occurs. That right there, you know, when you're reading something and you, you, you kind of look for a red herring in somebody's argument when you're looking at something historically and analytically, and the red herring here in this message from Sullivan is everybody's making mistakes, everybody, you know, doesn't know what's going on, but I'm the one who actually tried to make this happen. That's a red herring. The actual thing he's saying in this argument is 
This was a politically sensitive situation. I'm a politician. Therefore, my career is on the line. I can't just let anybody go into Laos whenever they want because a crash has occurred because of the political sensitivity. If he wasn't, if he was truly operating with the sole intention of going against the vein and, and despite everything, trying to do everything he can to make this bright light mission happen, like he says in the red herring portion of this memo, then why is he even bringing up the political sensitivity? Well, he's covering his ass. And, and just this self, this is the thing. This book by uh, George Vyeth is, um, it's pretty good. I mean, it, it has footnotes. It's well-sourced, but uh, it's difficult to read at times. It's not um, written for the layman. It's written by somebody who is really familiar with this history and has kind of forgotten how to relay it to somebody who isn't imminently familiar with this kind of history. You know, it's like a military historian writing for other military historians, which is cool, and I respect that as somebody who loves military history, but I think military history needs to be accessible to anybody picking this up and shouldn't, it, it shouldn't, you, you, you shouldn't have to like take a break in a book and like look back like, okay, who is he talking about here? What's going on? You know, you have to kind of hold people's hands through really difficult stuff. And that's not at all a bad thing because this is really complicated. Just this single passage, I'm trying to help you guys and help myself understand. So I'm really focusing on the memo here because Vyeth is biased. I mean, he, he, he literally says in his commentary um, that Sullivan's refusal to immediately allow the Bright Light team into Laos because of political sensitivities may have cost a man his life. That's a direct quote from this book. So he's, he's placing blame on Sullivan here. I am actually more apt to place the blame on the entire system that's set up here. That even though we were bombing Laos, killing people in Laos, fighting a war in Laos, we still wanted to pretend as a nation that we were like going through the ambassador. It, it was the entire situation set up in Vietnam where you're like only you're fighting the war with one hand tied behind your back. That that's the real the real situation here, and that's costing people their lives. It's not just Sol Sullivan's fault. He's a politician. He's an ambassador. He's not a military man. Why is he in a position in the first place to be making this kind of decision? So for that, I think this author really could have kind of checked his emotions, and perhaps could have pursued a stronger editor editor to say, "Hey, man." You're trying to report history here, not, you know, play, you know, judge and jury. So I, I really want to give Sullivan the benefit of the doubt here and understand where he's coming from. And he says where he's coming from. He's like, I, I got stymied by the politics here. Of course he did. He's a politician. And why in God's name was a politician in the first place placed at a pivotal military operation chain of command? Right, right there. That right there is a red flag. And that right there is something to understand when you're understanding the incredible gray area nuance of the Vietnam War as a whole. I also want to just take a look at how Westmoreland... I mean, you can see the... Because we have correspondence between 
Sullivan, Ambassador Sullivan, and General Westmoreland side by side here, Sullivan writes like a politician. He's writing ambiguously. He's writing in a way at which he can kind of not commit to saying anything, but he's actually saying something. And that's why we're looking at red herrings and what he's actually saying and juxtapositioning them and, and seeing what he's actually saying. Wes Mullen just says it. Hey, we, he, he literally says it. It's so much clearer to read this. I regret to say that we have missed an opportunity to pick up a survivor through procedure problems in spite of our exchange of messages. That's it. He said it. We messed up here. And we need to figure out why um, this shouldn't have taken this long. And this is, again, just a mismeeting of the minds. Sullivan's not a general. Westmoreland is a general. Westmoreland talks like a general and has expectations along the lines of what a general would expect. Sullivan has expectations along what a politician would expect. These two men should not be vying with each other with this kind of operation. Um, anyways, just this situation led to the loss of men who have never been accounted for. You know, Wright and Palmer, these Air Force aviators, were never found because this system was in place that really, when you look at it objectively, of course it didn't work. Of course, it, it did not work. And this is the story over and over and over again in this book. And this book as a story of the bright light efforts during the Vietnam War is really difficult to read. It's not feel good. None of it is feel good. It's terrible. And the people who suffered were American servicemen who were captured and treated horribly at the hands of uh, enemy who was not really capable, equipped, or culturally um, privy to humane treatment of prisoners. So there was a lot of really kind of, you know, weird ways due to the nature of the enemy during the Vietnam War that POWs were located and uh, people were even aware of POWs um, in certain areas and by people I mean Americans it was the jungle itself was an entity in the war once you disappeared into the jungle it was like a drop in the ocean and the Vietnamese moved quickly they would smuggle you quickly as far away as possible from where they captured you they would put you into a series of camps and constantly move you if you're a POW. And locating somebody like that, held by unconventional forces that are moving fluidly across great stretches of terrain that's heavily forested and uncontrolled, is impossible. It's, it's nearly impossible. So, sometimes... It was through really weird chance encounters that it was discovered a POW, an American POW, was in a particular place because you can't rescue somebody until you know where they are. So people get lost. 
and sometimes months or even years would go by before any word was even accessed or heard of of where they might even be. Going back to the book, we can kind of get a glimpse into this kind of chaotic situation of trying to locate POWs. Many of the American POWs in the South were being held near the South, Amer South Vietnamese-Cambodian border in Tainan province. They were often reported being moved or seen in the area. One of the closest calls the JPRC would ever have in attempting to rescue American POWs was their first cross-border raid, dubbed Cobra Tail. Hansen had just arrived back from Saigon from Udorn, where he was briefing the Thai-based air crews. Boatwright assumed, informed him that, quote, two men from the 135th MI group were waiting to take him to a safe house in Saigon suburbs to meet a Vietnamese man who swore that he had seen two Caucasians being held prisoner in a camp near the Cambodian border. The Vietnamese was a walk-in, a source who shows up at your door with information. He was a tinker, a traveling repair shop who went into remote border areas with sharp areas sharpening knives selling needles, pins, and small household items. It was during his travels that he had seen the prisoners. He had seen, more, he had seen them more than once, the last time about five days before. Trying to pinpoint the location was, quote, a bitch, as the guy had never seen a map before. Fortunately, the 135th had a set of large-scale pictomaps of the area. We spent most of the day trying to locate the encampment, but I finally got a pretty good fix on it. It was three kilometers inside the Cambodian border. End quote. The location was an isolated hamlet called Ba Tao, near the, bear, bear, near the Parrot Beaks area. Earlier, on December 18th, the source had been polygraphed, and no deception was found. Hansen had Sog fly an aerial mission and take oblique photos of the camp. The source was debriefed again using the photos and the camp location was established at a point only 30 meters inside the Cambodian border. The source drew a very precise sketch of the camp layout, including the guard locations and the approaches to the prison. On Christmas Day, the Saigon Embassy granted permission for a recovery operation. Hansen went to see Colonel Singlob and briefed him on the operation. Singlob was enthusiastic and together they went out to see the commanding general of the 25th Infantry Division, who agreed to launch the raid using his forces. Hansen spent the next three days with the 25th Infantry planning the operation. The raid was scheduled for December 30. On the eve of the raid, Hansen was joined at division headquarters by one of Singlob's most trusted officers, First Lieutenant Fred Caristo. Caristo had been working in SOG, sending OP-34 commando teams into North Vietnam, Someone was needed on this raid who was a combat veteran and could speak both Vietnamese and Cambodian. Caristo fit the bill. He had been detailed to assist the 25th Infantry in their planning, especially since they had done few helicopter insertion-type raids. Caristo had recommended that the 25th change their original plan to go in at first light and instead attack at noon, hoping to catch the enemy resting in their hammocks after lunch. When the flight took off, Caristo was in the lead helicopter. As the helicopter came in flying low and fast, Caristo had climbed out onto the skid. Just as the helicopter was about to touch down, the pilot realized he was on the wrong side of the LZ. 
and clearing the, the area next to the hut containing the Americans. As the helicopter flared to make its landing, Caristo jumped, not knowing that the pilot had at the last second decided to turn around and set down on the other side. Landing in the rice paddy, Caristo turned to see the helicopter lift away. Instead of the helicopters landing the troops and attacking the hut, the element of surprise was now gone. Even worse, instead of a small camp guard unit and a nearby reaction force, dozens of NVA troops began pouring out of bunkers and started firing at the retreating helicopters. Caristo was out in the open, on the ground, alone. A horseshoe-shaped minefield was between him and the hut. Caristo remembers thinking, they're going to kill the prisoners. In an unbelievable feat of courage, he jumped up and ran across the minefield directly for the hut that he believed held the two Americans. Miraculously, he was unharmed by either the enemy fire and his churning feet never touched one of the deadly mines. Reaching the hut, Caristo never bothered to stop and ran straight through the back wall of the bamboo shack and leveled a rifle at two people, an elderly man and a young boy. Crystal, Caristo recalls, quote, I kept shouting, where are the Americans? Where are the Americans? But I didn't realize that I was shouting in Vietnamese and they were answering in Cambodian. When I finally understood the problem, I asked the old man in Cambodian, where are the Americans? The old man looked at me, pointed at two pieces of rope laying on the ground, and said, Gone. My heart sank. I asked him, when did they go? And he said, Late last night. Again, incredible acts of heroism by men on the ground trying to get POWs back but a whole string of communication issues led to the American forces being too late and missing the POWs this time it was communication between the people who got this walk-in guy a tinkerer, quote-unquote, who just travels around like a nomad and sharpens knives and fix people's, you know, you know, tools and stuff. And he had gone into Cambodia, saw these Americans a couple times, came back, reported it. A couple days had passed between him first seeing the Americans and reporting it. And then they had to polygraph him with a lie detector, make sure he wasn't lying. They had to pinpoint where they were. All that took time. They finally figured it out. And then five days after that, Saigon approved a operation. A couple days after that, the you know infantry division in the area uh, was notified. And then they planned a mission. And then the mission was finally launched. And a foul up occurred, which allowed um, landing in the wrong spot. And Caristo, this brave American Special Forces member uh, missed him by just a couple hours. And those kinds of stories are hard to read, but what they do is they they shine 
the story of Caristo running through that minefield alone is the story of the American POW rescue efforts. It was, despite itself, one of the most heroic things, you know, trying again and again to get these men, even though we were failing again and again. It's tough to read, but it's also... It's incredible history, what these men did. And the the attempts to locate American POWs were just... I mean, it was just like an ongoing nightmare trying to find Americans in the depths of the jungle with fighting a guerrilla enemy that doesn't have a formal chain of command where they know where everybody is and they're, they don't even know how to keep track. It's just all localized units of NVA and VC and people in between shepherding these POWs around. So what hope did the American military even have of finding these guys? But they kept trying. And one of the ways that attempts at rescuing folks was found was that code letters would be used. And by a code letter, I mean a letter, a predetermined letter, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, from the English alphabet, a predetermined letter would be given to pilots. And if they were shot down, they would take logs or whatever they could to write that letter on the ground in a space visible from the air so that anybody flying overhead, if they saw this code letter on the ground, they would know that there's very possibly an American down there trying to signal them. Kind of an ingenious way, because if you're NVA or VC communist, you don't know what the letter could be. So if you see a B down there, but that letter's code week for, or that code letter for the week is, you know, T, then, you know, you know it's a trap. But if it's a T down there, then it's a pretty high likelihood that somebody's down there and their radio's dead and who knows, but they're trying to signal you. And uh, code letters would be spotted around South Vietnam and surrounding areas. Back to the book. In the first half of 1969, several code letters were spotted on the ground in Laos. On March 13th, the code letter T was spotted. Cass was alerted and discovered it was a group of RLA troops and their dependents who had gathered to be evacuated from enemy attacks. On March 19th, the code letter N was reported at grid XC. 9314. The letter was confirmed by visual reconnaissance. JPRC alerted the 7th Air Force, which immediately dispatched two F-4s to deliver survival kits. The kits were placed on the target three hours later. They remained unopened for the next day. An orbiting F-100 FAC reported seeing a parachute shelter and receiving mirror flashes from grid XC-1286 in Laos. JPRC asked, 4802 JLD to investigate the sighting and requested 7th AF Air Force to continue to fly visual recon in the area. JLD is preparing a team for infiltration and is scheduled to launch the team on 27th March 69, end quote. However, for unknown reasons, the team was delayed until March 31st. The kits remained unopened and were destroyed by napalm on April 8th. On March 34, on Mar- excuse me, on March 31st, the Air Force reported that film recently taken just north of the DMZ showed a possible evader symbol. 
Since the location was in North Vietnam, the 7th AF wished to obtain more photo coverage before committing additional assets. On April 7th, fresh coverage confirmed the symbol, and the commander of the 7th Air Force directed an E&E kit be dropped. On April 8th, the weather was terrible. However, the kit wasn't dropped until the next day. The Air Force flew repeated missions over the area, but no visual or electronic contact was established with the evader. The search was suspended until April, April 11th. Why was it taking so long to respond to possible E&E singles? E&E signals. Why did it take CAS 10 days to launch a search team to investigate someone signaling with a mirror, especially since that was a common procedure? The answers are difficult to ascertain, but several possible reasons are the dangers involved, the presence of possible enemy trap, the prevention of lack of results, the previous lack of results, and continual and the continued political ramifications of putting Americans on the ground in Laos. But if Department of Defense and the state were so adamant about not revealing the presence of Americans to the enemy, and the military had modified the normal SAR procedures to attempt to recover Raven FACs even if no beeper was heard, why was the slow response to the signals? Unfortunately, the post-SAR picture would be no different. Three major post-SAR rescue attempts were conducted in 1968, all of them in December, and all in Laos. The first was a USA, USAF RF-4C reconnaissance plane shot down on December 11th. The front seat pilot ejected and was rescued by SAR forces on the morning of December 12th. There was no sign of his crewman, Russell D. Galbraith, but the pilot said he had definitely ejected, but they had, he had not seen him after he had landed. The Joint SAR Center immediately requested JPRC assistance. Within four hours, JPRC had notified the embassies in Vientiane, Bangkok, and Saigon, plus queried SINPAC to obtain the necessary clearances. A Vietnamese manned bright light team was pre-positioned at the U.S. airbase at Nakam Phanom, Thailand. Vientiane, however, already had a CAS Roadwatch team in the area, and that team was ordered to search the area. They located the pilot's radio and parachute, but were unable to find any trace of Galbraith. Sullivan then refused permission for the Bright Light team to deploy to assist for the search. The team returned to Da Nang. Another post-SAR mystery occurred the following week, when a Navy A-6A was shot down. The pilot ejected, and though he twice scanned in a 360-degree circle, he was unable to locate his backseater. Michael Bouchard. The pilot was picked up by SAR forces, but the second crew member could not be positively, positively located, even though a beeper was heard and signaler responded to commands. The JPRC notified Udorn and requested they launch a search team into the area. Three teams were sent in for several days to look for him, and a loudspeaker on an airplane was also used, but no sign of Bouchard was found. Writing to Bouchard's son, the pilot tried to explain the circumstances of his father's loss. His poignant letter was quoted in the Senate Select Committee report. Quote, What happened to your dad and I was the real definition of rotten coincidence. As we rolled in and released the bombs, two anti-aircraft rounds struck the airplane on the right side. The explosion caused the engine to explode and the right wing blew off at the fold. At this point, we looked at each other and ejected from the aircraft. 
I went out a second or so before Mike and wound up on the west side of a small river. He was on the east. The material and the people we were after were there. There was enough evidence that Mike might not be might be held in the general area where we were hit that a bright light team was inserted in an attempt to find and rescue him. They found nothing indicating his having been there. It was hard to accept, but I feel he was killed that first night. Finally, on December 24th, Charles Brownlee, flying an F-105D, was also hit and bailed out over Laos. SAR forces discovered the pilot hanging in a tree. He was described as inert. A para-jumper, Charles King, was lowered down the helicopter's hoist to bring him on board. King then radioed he was wounded by ground fire. The helicopter attempted to winch him and the pilot on board, but the cable broke and both fell 10 feet to the ground. Under an extremely heavy enemy barrage, the SAR helicopter was forced to pull away. A short beeper was heard 10 minutes later. The JPRC staged a bright light team to NKP in Thailand, but due to the enemy presence, Sullivan refused again to allow them to go in. Currently, Galbraith, Brownlee, and King are considered, quote, primary priority discrepancy cases by the U.S. government. These are cases in which the United States believes the Vietnamese and Lao governments should be able to provide quick and easy answers to the fate of MIAs since they were lost in close proximity to enemy forces. Strangely, the Bouchard case is not on this list, although the SAR forces reported a beeper and the signaler responded to commands. Regardless, the communists have denied any knowledge of what happened to any of these men. So... That part of the book is handling the, giving insight, I should say, into just the chaos of trying to locate downed airmen, trying to get them out in a timely manner. It's taking weeks between any kind of contact with somebody and being able to actually send a team in ambassador sullivan in laos is denying teams going in even after saigon has proved that they go in and time is of the essence here trying to get guys out the successful search and rescue recovery attempts are a day two days maximum after a pilot has been on the ground they go in and they get him before the communists can find him if somebody is e and Eing, escaping and evading, then they're moving, they're trying to evade capture, and if they make a signal contact at one point, they could be, you know, miles from there in two days' time, let alone a week later when Saigon finally approves a rescue attempt. So, this letter written by a pilot to the sun of his co-pilot who was killed potentially because the true tragedy here is that we don't know what happened to these men we still don't know what happened to these men they have been swallowed up by the jungle so It's, it's, it's a tragedy that's really um, defined our national understanding of the Vietnam War. So, 
we out of a son, a young kid, being written and told that uh, this is what happened. We tried to get your dad. I'm pretty sure your dad's dead, but we really don't know. And here we are, and uh, at least when this book was written in 1998, they still didn't know. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, it's also really interesting because we first found the introduction of para-jumpers, PJs. PJs are Air Force-trained personnel who are essentially they're Air Force Special Forces guys. They're Special Operations guys who are trained to react really quickly to go get downed pilots go get wounded personnel they're medically trained they're combat trained um, they're trained to be an all-in-one do-it-yourself unit dispatched by the air force flown in they repel in get guys get them out and uh here, there we heard about a para jumper going in to get out an american pow um or excuse me a wounded american pilot who has uh strung up in a tree on his parachute and uh that went wrong. These are just some selections from this book. Codename Bright Light, The Untold Story of U.S. POW Rescue Efforts During the Vietnam War by George W. Vyeth. Linked in the description for you folks to uh, pick it up and read it if you'd like. And just a brief glimpse into the chaos, the political nightmare of trying to get anything done in Vietnam and uh, a really intense subject it's easy to blame it's easy to blame the military it's easy to blame the politicians it's easy to blame the communists it's not easy to understand that it was a combination of everything it was a combination of everything that caused the incredible roadblocks present in getting American POWs out or getting downed Americans out who were trying to evade capture. But, like in BAT 21, where a Medal of Honor was awarded to a Navy SEAL who swam and piloted a sandpan and all these other incredible feats of heroism. The U.S. Special Forces individual who ran through that minefield, crashed through the wall of a Cambodian hut to find Americans who had been there just hours previously. Those are stories that, in the midst of the tragedy of these POWs and MIAs of the Vietnam War, amidst that tragedy, there is a shining, bright light of this history. So for me, bright light holds two meanings. First and foremost, bright light is the codename of U.S. POW rescue efforts during the Vietnam War. The second meaning is that it's a bright light shining during the dark period of our national story during the Vietnam War. Yes, we left people behind. Yes, we were not adequately equipped to get people out at the time. 
But we tried. We tried and we learned. Vietnam was a war of firsts. And it was a war where we were learning how to fight asymmetrical warfare against, in many cases, an invisible enemy. And when an American aviator or a ground personnel was captured, he was swallowed by the jungle and became invisible himself. And how do you catch smoke with your bare hands? So for that reason, I'm very compassionate towards everybody here. Towards the ambassadors who weren't trained to be military thinkers, to the military thinkers who weren't trained to be political thinkers, and to the men on the ground who tried their absolute best to get men out despite all odds. For that reason, not only is this a dark chapter of American history that we need to understand and study, there is a bright light shining amongst that darkness. And it makes me uh, very proud to be able to share this story and work with men like John Stryker Meyer, who actually participated in Bright Light Teams. If you want to, if you want to hear about um, some of the SOG efforts in Cambodia, in Laos, listen to podcast number 10 with John Stryker Meyer. So make sure you subscribe, follow on Spotify. However you listen to podcasts, uh, you'll be able to find the Modern Military History Podcast. Be aware of the second channel, Modern Military Gaming. It's kind of a silly, fun second channel where I publish the beer cast, where I publish uh, just kind of fun little short videos, video games, clips, rants, raves, just fun stuff. Because having fun is important, especially when you're dealing with uh, heavy topics like this. And continue to follow this space. Modern military history is continuing. We do not make money. We are educational, not for profit. Um, I don't get paid at all for this. As a matter of fact, I it costs me money to do this. I buy books. If I'm interviewing somebody, I buy their books. I buy books to uh, bring to you guys. I pay for my web domain. Um, and uh, mostly it's, it's incredibly wonderful. It's incredibly wonderful to be able to bring these stories of heroism and true courage amidst the darkness to you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Go out and buy this book. Um, buy any other book on uh, bright light missions during the Vietnam War and educate yourself about this nation's story and this nation's history and learn to see bright light amidst the darkness because the more you acquaint yourself with the truly dark elements of our history, I find the more you get in contact with the truly bright points of our collective story. It's often amidst the most dark of times that people shine the brightest. And for that reason, the history of bright light continues to be some of the most inspiring stuff and the most frustrating stuff you'll read about the Vietnam War or about our military history in general. Thank you, and I really appreciate you listening. Until next time, of the Modern Military History Channel, with yours truly, Andy. Thank you. Have a great day. Take care.